Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Hope all is good with you and yours, wherever you might be in this world of ours, listening to this with your headphones in. Of course, if you are traveling on public transport, this is just a, a little reminder to everybody, and I'm quite sure that the incredibly considerate educated audience that the Arscast has would never travel on a train or a bus and play this podcast or some music or YouTube or whatever it is you can do on your phone. You can watch anything, listen to anything. You wouldn't play it out loud. So everybody on the bus or the train or the plane could hear. You wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. And I'm not saying this because I had to get a bus into town the other night and there was somebody sitting just a few seats ahead of me blaring out some music on their phone and not good music at that. Actually, that is exactly why I'm telling you this, because it's really annoying. And whatever about a podcast, right? Whatever about a podcast is just sort of two people talking or three people talking, whatever it is. But music, when it's played through the speaker of a phone... I mean, that's got to be the worst way to listen to music. We've come a long way with technology. You can put headphones in your ears. It cancels out all the other noise, and you can listen to the textures and the beats and the trebles and the basses and all of those kinds of things. But if you play music from your phone speaker, you don't get any of that. You just get this kind of trebly, tinny noise, which approximates music. You would hear better sound from a gramophone. So if you're in your car and you're blasting this from your car stereo, well, then that's fine, because it's your car, you're in charge of the stereo, and you get to say what goes on. But if you're on a bus, or if you're on a plane, or if you're on a train, and you're listening to this or anything else through your phone speaker so other people can hear it, I'm sorry. You're you're a very, very bad person, and there's literally no hope for you. You are irredeemable. You will, I'm sorry to say, spend all of eternity burning in the fiery depths of hell. And if you want to spend eternity with the likes of Piers Morgan and John Terry, that's up to you. But you have a choice. Bring your headphones. And if you don't, and there's somebody on the plane, train, bus, whatever it is, playing music, then simply ease your frustration by ranting about it on the start of your next podcast. Simple, simple. 
It has been a quiet week, but things are going to ramp up. We've got Leicester at the weekend. The Europa League draw is about to happen. There's been a few bits and bobs going on at Arsenal this week, so let's get on and talk about those. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show today from the Evening Standard. It's Simon Collings. Hi, Simon. Hi, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. We should start with the news that the English government has published a white paper about the introduction of an independent regulator to football, something that has been in the pipeline for quite a while. Um, The Football Supporters Association, their uh, spokesperson, the chief executive, Kevin Miles, said, we warmly welcome the historic commitment from the government to introduce an independent regulator of English football. Uh, This addresses key concerns around ownership, rogue competition, sustainability, and, of course, we uh, support any proposals that offer fans a greater voice in the running of their clubs, and some of these proposals include a licensing system, tougher rules around ownership, um, the power to stop breakaway competitions, uh, and a number of other things. So before we get to the Premier League's response, how, how do you think this regulator might work? Because obviously some of this is a good idea. We saw what happened with the, the Super League and the reaction to that. Some of it feels also a bit like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted a little. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the concern is um, with a lot of these things is, is have they are they really going to have the power to influence uh, in the way that you would need an independent regulator to do? And, and with the Premier League, it's, it's such a powerful force. And you look at the financial money they have involved in there, um, you know, particularly now we've seen Newcastle being taken over by Saudi Arabian investors, uh, there's obviously talk of Man United and the Qataris. And, and a big thing that is discussed in modern football is this idea of sports washing and, and foreign mm. investment. And are they really going to have the capability to sort of stop that influence? Um, that would be something I would be be questioning. And also, the, as you say, the, the, the damage feels like a lot of it has been done. Um, and whether they can come in at this stage and try and correct things that have been you know, set for a long time because, well, we'll talk about the reaction to it, but, you know, some Premier League owners, West Ham, have been pretty vociferously against this. And because for them, they're happy with the status quo. A lot of these Premier League clubs, you know, they're making money. The broadcast deals overseas are going up. So why would they want to change it? Um, And I think it's, I think this is the start of something. I I think there's a long way to go before we really see, you know, genuine change in in the English game. The Premier League themselves say... And their statement was quite um, passive-aggressive, if nicely worded. It said, we appreciate the government's commitment to protect the Premier League's continued success. We are strengthening our ownership rules and already providing $1.6 billion in financial support to the wider game in this current three-game cycle. It is vital that regulation does not damage the game fans love to watch in the deepest professional pyramid in the world or its ability to attract investment and grow interest in our game so i don't think you have to read too far between the lines to get the sense that the premier league are not keen on independent regulation because they do exist in this uh i don't know how you would call it this free market world where you know they can go and do these deals they can go and sell the rights here there and everywhere and ultimately if somebody comes along who might be considered uh 
an improper owner because I have this uh, fit and proper person's test for owners. But I, I think, you know, Jack the Ripper could probably uh, pass it if he really wanted. You know, uh, they want to be able to do what they want. So they're, they're very much protecting what they have. And you can kind of understand why. And you mentioned West Ham, you know. Uh, far be it for me to side with with David Sullivan or anything like that, but you know his point was like, well, how can you really trust anything that this government does when you know look around and see what what's happening with this government? Um, which is a reasonable point, even if you might suggest his his interests are slightly different from simple opposition to the government. Yeah, I think that that is it's a strong argument from Sullivan, but it, it's interesting. You know, West Ham have come out with that, and you look at Brighton, who I think a lot of people would consider possibly the best run club in the Premier League, or if not close to it. And they, you know, Paul Barber, the, the chief exec, made the point that you know you shouldn't really have anything to fear if you're a well-run club. This shouldn't change anything in the way you operate. I, I think the the issue where you're going to have it is, like you say, the Premier League is so powerful because of this outside investment. And they will look at this independent regulator. Is this going to be a way that stops that happening? Is this going to stop clubs being able to put, you know, owners put money into their clubs and stop the way it's run? And their argument will be that a lot of these things that the regulator are trying to address, where we've seen the problems, you know, the likes of Berry, your Macclesfields, all the way back to the days of Wimbledon. These are sort of outside the Premier League bubble. And actually within the Premier League, certainly in the, you know, the past decade or so, Mm-hmm. We haven't seen clubs going to the wall, big issues like that. But the point that Rick Parry and the EFL will make is that this all trickles down. You know, the problems below the Premier League happen because there isn't the funding coming down. There isn't the money going to grassroots. So it's a difficult one where you've got different stakeholders all fighting for what they want. And the Premier League is at the top of this pyramid. They are the king kingmakers, the big juggernauts. And they aren't going to want to change the status quo because as they see it, they like the way it is and, for a lot of them, you know, it is thriving at the moment. I mean, there are things in this that, that I think from a fan's perspective are are uh, important. So there's, um, they say this will guarantee your fans a greater say in the strategic running of their clubs and help protect clubs' heritage to stop owners changing names, badges, and home shirt colors without consulting fans. It will require clubs to seek regulator approval for any sale or relocation of the stadium with fan engagement a major part of that process so, you know which sounds great uh, obviously and and fans want to protect the things about their clubs that that they love that are part of the the history and and everything else it also says there'll be new tests for owners and directors ensuring good custodians of clubs stronger due diligence on sources of wealth and a requirement for robust financial planning i mean are those things that are going to be applied to everybody or to just new owners you know how ex- how exactly um is that going to work or should that work and how do you view the you know the the idea that let's say you're the owner of Arsenal FC you are a, a mega billionaire you've come in you've spent all the money and you want to do something with the club that you own it might be in contravention to what what fans might think but ultimately You've paid a lot of money for this football club. I'm not saying you should do it, but if you wanted to, is it a bit weird that you're not allowed because of a government white paper? And look, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. on things like this, because, you know, people and businesses and countries and billionaires and nation states have spent huge amounts of money on football clubs, and they haven't done it to be told what to do by an independent regulator or the British government. 
it's the same argument with FFP, isn't it? Where if you have, you know, a wealthy owner who wants to spend his money, uh, you know, extravagantly and pump it into the club, then why should he be stopped to be doing so? The argument against that, and it'll be the same as the independent regulator make, well, yes, it's fine doing that, but it needs to be done in a sustainable way, a way that means if for some reason you aren't the owner, this club isn't going to absolutely collapse. Um, the thing around the sort of testing and, and licensing, yeah, I think they're going to have a difficulty if a, if someone is already in place in charge of a club, can you realistically make them do a test and suddenly say, no, you've got to sell up because that is obviously going to cause instability to the club if someone's forced to sell it. Um, but it is, I think, that, that idea of fans being involved, certainly around stadium moving, badges, kit colours. Um, you know, I go back to Wimbledon. When I started at the, the Evening Standard, one of the clubs that I, I got to cover for a bit, and they, you speak to anyone from that club and talk about the time where basically they had absolutely no say in that club moving to Milton Keynes, changing the name, and that happening. So, yeah, I think it's something that needs to be in place. Um, that difficulty will come whereby if there are clubs already where there's issues with the owner, can they step in? and make them do a test when they've already done a test from the EFL or the Premier League. Mm. I remember when Wimbledon were being talked about as a, a club that was going to move to Dublin uh, back in the day. That was a, a big thing. And obviously that didn't come to pass. But yeah, I mean, I think those things uh, could be very important. Obviously, there's a lot uh, a lot for the clubs and for the Premier League and for the uh, the people in charge of this to uh, to get right. But it'll be interesting to see how it's applied and what kind of opposition and how difficult it might be for uh, for these things to come to pass. But obviously, uh, people like the FSA, like the Arsenal Supporters Trust, who have been very welcoming of these developments, um, are going to keep chipping away and keep chipping away and, and doing the work that they do, which ultimately, hopefully, will be uh, of, of benefit to fans and um, and to football in general. So let's see, let's see how that goes. Um, let's switch towards Arsenal. And with another away game, this weekend against Leicester in the Midlands after a remarkable win over Aston Villa last weekend. What do you think the key lessons Mikel Arteta will have taken from that game at Villa Park? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a chaotic game. Uh, and I was saying it to a few of the journalists afterwards, I've seen that Unai Emery game before <laughs> um, where the last 10 minutes were I mean, I appreciate Villa wanted to go for the win, but you would think them at home struggling, they might have shut up shop and settled for what it was. But no, it, it turned into a bit of a basketball match. Um, I think for Arsenal, there were sort of similar lessons to the Man City game where traits from the first half of the season that made this team so good have, have slightly disappeared in recent weeks. And maybe that's because of fatigue. Maybe that's because of the way the opposition have set up. But, you know, Arsenal have typically been fantastic starters in game. They started games really on the front foot, lots of early goals. Um, they've also controlled matches really well. I felt, particularly pre-World Cup, there was a sense that they were always sort of dictating, controlling the tempo of a game. It didn't get as end-to-end -end as that Villa game did. And also those individual errors which, which crept in against City were present against Villa. So I think having a full week on the training ground, being able to drill the basics... And get back to being what Arsenal were. And I think it was interesting, a few of the players and Arteta himself said, his team talk at half-time wasn't really, you know, something spectacular. He basically said, get back to do what you've done to get us into this position. Don't try and do anything else. And I almost think for Arsenal, it's a case of that, just looking back at what they did to get here and, and redoing that because they were so successful playing that way. And it just feels like the last few games, they sort of lost that. Um, but maybe with a clear week, 
chance to rest, they can put some things right. Was it, I mean, it was interesting to hear Aaron Ramsdale talk about how that was the worst, one of the worst ways to win a game. Um, because, I, you know, I was looking at it, I'm sure many people were looking at it thinking, wow, this is... Um, this is the shot in the arm that this team needs. Something mad has happened, but you take the positives out of it. But he was talking about, well, if we keep playing like that, if we keep conceding goals, if we allow the opposition to go ahead and then get a get level and allow them to go ahead again, you know, at some point we're gonna we're gonna lose. We're gonna not be able to recover a situation like that. So it strikes me that maybe the first half and and some of the uh, defensive errors will be in focus. But I thought it was interesting when you mentioned control there. And control since the World Cup, it's hard not to immediately think of Gabriel Jesus as a significant factor in that. And it's not to be dismissive of Eddie and Ketty in any way, but he really did allow or help the team dictate the tempo of games, particularly in the opposition half, didn't he? Yeah. And, and with Jesus, always the thing was it wasn't so much his goals that Arsenal were going to miss, it was everything else that he brought, the way he linked. He linked play, he linked the midfield, and particularly Gabriel Martinelli's struggles, I think, can be linked to, to Jesus being out of the team. The relationship those those two have on and off the pitch, but you'd see the way Jesus would sort of pull out left and leave that space for Martinelli to come in. Eddie Nketiah, I think, has done brilliantly for the large part, but he is a very different player. You know, he's a penalty box striker. He wants to stay in the middle. He's not really going to drift out wide. I think his hold-up play and his overall game has improved a bit, but... Jesus coming back, which Arsenal are being very guard, guard, guarded on that. Arteta the same, keeping, mm. his, keeping his cards close to chest. I think when they get him back, that will be a big boost because, you know, it's spoken about a lot the way that Arsenal haven't really been able to bring players off the bench to sort of change games and impact matches. But if you think you've got Jesus back starting and suddenly you're, you know, into the last half an hour of a game, you're bringing on Smith-Rowe, Benketia, Trossard, Vieira, suddenly the team looks like a one that can change a game if you're behind. And I think that will make a really big difference in the running. And the hope for Arsenal is obviously they've missed Jesus. They would have loved to have him. But if he comes back fresh for those last sort of 10, 12 games, I mean, that'll, to quote Arsene Wenger, will be like a new signing and absolutely <laughs> massive. How much do you think Arsenal are keeping their cards close to their chest in terms of, of, of Gabriel Jesus? Because, you know, there's 15 games to go. Um, People will be hoping to see him back sooner rather than later. They obviously will want to ease him back into action and make sure that nothing happens to him uh, by bringing him back too quickly. I mean, are they sort of doing a lot of stuff under wraps or is it simply a case that um, we've got dog action in the background there? Uh, I love My dog is squeaking on the cuddly toilet. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but um, I mean, might we see him sooner than we think? Or is there still, is your sense still that there might be a little bit of a, a little bit of a way to go on this one? Yeah. I mean, Arsenal have been quite, um, as you say, they've been very guarded on this, but they've been like that with a lot of the, the team news. And it is, it is a change of tact from the Unai Emery days. I mean, you will know mm. there was a sort of phase where they literally would put the team news on the website, player by player. This is the injury this is what he's doing right now. This is when he's going to be back. And it has sort of changed. And I think part of that is Arteta not wanting to give anything away to opposing teams. And also though, I think it is for Jesus, his character is someone who, if you give him a date, he's like, I'm going to be back two weeks earlier. Mm. And I kind of think that Arsenal are partly just saying to him, look, just let's just go through recovery. Let's not set a definitive time when you've got to be back. 
and just let yourself get ready at the right time. Because the last thing they want to do, which has happened in the past with players like Thomas Partey, Zinchenko even a bit this season, is rush him back, get him for that game, and then you lose him again. Mm. So I think there is a part of that, they're playing to his character, realising like, actually, if we just if we just let him do his recovery and don't tell him he's got to be back for this day, it might be better. And uh, I mean, it was it was thought around, people close to Jesus thought around three months when he did the injury. So that'll be what, end of February. I mean, if they could get him sort of in the squad for these games before the March international break and then hopefully Brazil don't call him up and he can have two full weeks at Colney. I think that would be ideal for Arsenal. And then you've got, what, April, May, you can have him in the team for the for the running. Mm. Imagine Brazil calling him up. <laughs> I mean, knowing back. Arsenal, that is something I can 100% see happening and then the issues, the fallout from that playing out. Oh, yeah. You'd have to do a bit of a Alex Ferguson, Ryan Giggs situation there. He's gone. We don't know where he is. You can't have him. He's gone missing. And then all of a sudden he's back for our, for our next game. I mean, that would be just, it would be too risky, but there you go. I mean, you mentioned Fabio Vieira and he is somebody who has started to feature just a little bit more. There was a little bit of an interview with him today on the official website where he's talking about how you know he's settled in now he's 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 feeling at home he feels like he's a better player but we haven't seen a huge amount of him yet but it feels as if uh, he is somebody who has taken a bit of time to get used to English football taken a bit of time to sort of understand completely what what it is that Mikel Arteta wants from a tactical perspective because I think you can have very clearly defined plans uh, as a coach and as a manager about how you want your team to play, but it can also take time to get players up to speed with that, depending on their experience and depending where it is exactly you're going to play them. He's, you know, he's played in the first half of the season, I think, a little bit more on the on the right, either deputizing for Saka or he's played where Martin Odegaard plays. But it's been interesting, I think, in the last couple of weeks, he's come on for Granite Xhaka in that left eight position. And I do wonder if that's something that they're trying to, uh, you know, to build up as part of his his arsenal, if you like that that ability to play in that position. I'm I'm not convinced he's quite ready to do that at, at Premier League level yet, because I think there's a measure of physicality that Xhaka brings to the team that's important and useful that that Vieira doesn't have. But again, going into this last push, these last fifteen games, and then obviously Europa League, which we'll talk about in, in a moment. Um, it's it's good to see him starting to feature a bit more because um, there is creativity there, uh, there, there is end product there, and and those things can be extremely important in in a title running. Yeah, he's he's, he's had a difficult season, isn't he? and I think it didn't help him that he came obviously with that injury and it disrupted his whole preseason. Actually, after the World Cup, Arteta said that him having that break um, felt like he was now physically ready to play in English football and contribute to the team. And I do think over the past few weeks where he has had an opportunity, he has looked better. I think where he needs to to sort of improve is be impacting matches sooner. I think back to that Oxford game where for the first sort of 45 minutes, I know the whole team wasn't great, but he was sort of drifting around the game. And then he has two brilliant moments where he gets an assist. And he does strike me as a player who at the end of the season, you'll look at his stats and you'll suddenly see like, oh, he's got eight goals, eight assists. Like he will just contribute mm. quite sort of big moments like that, which in a which in a run-in, as you say, is vital. Um, I feel like Arsenal have been quite carefully trying to manage his sort of adaptation. I think it's no coincidence they played him on that right-hand side where it's not quite as physical as playing in the midfield. It's a bit more time on the ball. Um, 
But longer term, there does seem to be a sense that he can play as one of those two number eights. And I, I think his best performance was was that Brentford away game where he doesn't get many chances to play with the sort of quote-unquote first team. But when he basically just slotted in and took Odegaard's position, I thought he looked really good in that side. Mm. Um, so having that sort of player off the bench, again, it's like we spoke about, when having those options, players who can change games, is that at this point in the season will be huge. And I think for him it can turn what has been a you know sort of a average first season in England to to a to a really impressive one. Emil Smith-Rowe is front and center in the in the training pictures and um, we've got Leandro Trossard now for the left-hand side. We've also got uh, Gabriel Martinelli for the left-hand side. Where does that leave Emil Smith-Rowe in your mind anyway because um it strikes me that when you make a signing in a specific position, when you are trying to make a very high-profile signing in a specific position, who you know who would, in inverted commas, replace a player who last season was Arsenal's second-highest goal scorer, really important, homegrown player, given the number 10 shirt, it just suggests you've got a different kind of a plan for him. So is he somebody that you might think will feature more centrally or, or perhaps on the right-hand side a bit with, with Saka or... I know yeah, it's I mean, fitness I, depending, isn't it? Obviously, but I've always been in, intrigued with Smithrow where he will eventually end up in this in this team because b- before Odegaard came, when Arsenal was sort of playing that four two three one, you know, when he came into the team, he was sort of playing as the number ten. He was mm. given that responsibility, and he looked very good there. Um, and then he also looked equally excellent when he played out on that left side and actually feel like as an alternative to Martinelli, he was a really good sort of change of system, change of style. Mm. I, I wonder if long-term Arsenal and Arteta, perhaps seeing him as being as one of those two number eights. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. They're playing sort of, um, they're playing Leicester on Saturday because that James Madison type player who sort of operates in that pocket between number 10 and number eight, I think I could see Smith Rowe doing something similar to that where he's really front foot, brilliant on the half turn, gets the team going forward, drive from midfield. Um, I think it would take time for him to adapt to that position, but there is going to be a point where Granit Xhaka, you know, he's 30, 31 coming up to that age. You're going to have to look at a succession plan. It's whether you try and sign someone, whether you look at Vieira, Smithrow, Patino, um, but that left eight position in the team, I think is up for grabs. And perhaps that's where they see Smithrow. And it's also whether you could play him out on the right. But for me, if I was looking at where I would want to perhaps see Arsenal try him out, I think as that left eight would be quite an interesting interesting proposition and would give something different to what, what Xhaka currently offers there. I agree. I, I think he's got the, the, the technical ability to do it, you know, the physical aspect of the game. I like, he's a surprisingly big guy, Smithrow, actually. Mm. You know, he is... He's not... Um, He's not a Vieira, you know, he is quite a, a, a big guy. So he could slot in there and, and do a, a pretty decent job, I think. It's just, again, you know, how quickly you can get him up to speed, how quickly you can how quickly you can get him fit uh, and into the team. But he brings you goals as well from midfield, which I think is an important aspect of where Arsenal are this season. Like, I know the front three have contributed, but so too has Martin Odegaard. Granit Xhaka, when he was in his best form this season, has a number of goals, a number of assists. So those contributions from midfield, which I've always felt are, like, 
hugely important for a team that's going to challenge for a title, not necessarily win one, but to be up at that end of the table, you can't be so heavily reliant on your striker and maybe two wingers. You've got to get the goals coming from somewhere else. So he maybe has that. If he doesn't have, let's say, Shaka's physicality or his presence, his defensive capabilities, you know, from set pieces that we're defending, he's certainly got more of a goal threat. Yeah, and, you know, Arteta has spoken a lot about if you want to be a team winning trophies, winning titles, you need to be a 100-goal team. You've got to be scoring 100 mm. goals a season. And Arsenal have improved that this season. I don't think you can you can doubt that. But there still is room for more goals in this team. I think that's still an element where they can improve on. And yes, there is going to be with Smith-Rowe the, the physical element um, that he needs to improve. But, you know, look at... Manchester City's midfield or, you know, Barcelona's midfield when they're playing Man United the other week, you know, and you've got Pedri and Gavi, who are, these aren't, these aren't big players. Uh, yeah. Yes, they've got a Busquets or a, you know, physical City have got a Rodri and Arsenal have a party. I think if you've got one player in that three who can bring that athleticism and that physical prowess, which party can, then it allows your other two players to maybe be lacking a bit in the areas, but have strengths elsewhere. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, I think, Smith, and he's a player who, we just haven't seen this season. There's just been really nothing from him, which is a shame because for the first half of last season, he was up there with one of the best players. And again, you know, like we said with Vieira, like we said with Jesus, the opportunity is there for these players in the running to make an impact when they haven't had a chance in the past few months. So yeah, big a big few months coming out for him. All right, let's talk Bakayo Saka then. Uh, speaking of somebody who can score goals, <laughs> um, somebody who is in the spotlight for um, the kind of treatment that he receives uh, on the pitch and maybe the protection or lack of protection he gets from referees, which is something that Mikel Arteta has been asked about a number of times. I'm sure you've been in the, the press conferences when that's happened and, and maybe asked a question or two about this. And Arteta's he plays it with a fairly straight bat, doesn't he, in that he wants Saka to, I don't know, he doesn't want to make a special case of him. I think that's probably what it boils down to, that he can recognize this is somebody who is being singled out at times for different treatment from the opposition. And that, in some ways, is a testament to his quality as a player, right? The best players get kicked an awful lot. I mean, have you seen anything from Saka? I mean, I... I liked his reaction the other day when he had that tackle from Coutinho. I liked the way he stood up for himself, even if he kind of ridiculously got a yellow card for sticking up for himself and Coutinho got away with nothing. I like the fact that he's willing to do that. I like the fact that when Buendia came in on him one time, he basically threw him over his shoulder and left him on the ground. I mean, is it a case that Saka is going to have to... Um, Stand up for himself is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? He's going to have to demonstrate to opposition players that, okay, well, if you kick me, you're going to get a bit back as well. The refereeing aside, the officiating aside, which I still think is a bit um, is a bit off at times, the fact that he's had so many yellow cards this season and other players just haven't is, is a bit mind-boggling. But I think just showing that you're not going to be kicked around might be as... Uh, good a way is uh, of dealing with this as any other. Yeah, and it was um, it was it was after that that Villa game that um, I, I was trying to think, and I was, couldn't really remember Saka reacting like that really ever. And he is an incredibly you know mild mannered, 
kind, one of the sort of most loved players. If you speak to anyone at Arsenal in England, he's adored by pretty much every player and staff member at, at those places. And um, sort of prompted prompted me just to sort of try and speak to people who, who work with him, have worked with him for a long time and uh, ended up doing a piece in it this week. And, and those people said, well, to be honest with you, he's always had that edge. Um, more so off the pitch that he will he will voice his opinion if something's not right. He will stand up for it and he will he's not afraid to you know step in if something's wrong. And they kind of feel that the environment at Arsenal is important in the team now has gotten to the point where he feels yeah he feels emboldened to be able to do that. And mm. I think every big player needs to have that bit of bite, have that edge because you know even someone like Messi again, who's sort of seen as this quite shy bloke, you know very much loved and adored he's got a bit of devil in him. If someone's giving it to him, he's quite happy to give it back. And I think Saka doing that was just a bit of a message to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take this anymore. And also I th- the big thing, I think that Arteta didn't voice it publicly, but he'll have been pleased by the way that the whole team, yeah, as soon as that kicked off, all piled in. And, you know, Saka there sort of pushed over two Villa players and the next minute he's got his six foot four centre half charging in and has got his back instantly. And it, it's a thing where the players as well, I think need to protect, protect Saka and, um, I can see why Arteta doesn't talk about it because he probably partly knows that this is going to happen to him in his career. If you are that sort of player, you're going to get targeted. And if you make it a thing where you play the victim card and it becomes a big deal, I think he's worried about it impacting Saka. But I mean, I, for me, I, there's every game I watch Saka and I kind of feel like we're not going to see him next week and somehow his powers of recovery just bounces back uh, yeah i mean even in the villa game about 50 about 10 minutes into the second half i was going well that's him done i guess you know they're on they've strapped him up and he's getting a you know two or three minutes of treatment which is never good and you're thinking oh well here we go and he plays uh the rest of the game and as i was saying to james on the arsecast extra when when martinelli scores that goal you just see this figure sprinting into shot in the 98th minute and it's Bakayo Saka and I guess that says a lot about about his physicality I have seen it though you know I like what you mentioned there about the team standing up for him and I've seen Martin Odegaard do it a bit as well and other players sort of let the referee know rather than Saka complaining to the referee himself you know the captain has told the referee this is the second time third time he's been kicked even Arteta on the the sideline the other week was doing like it's the fourth one I can't remember which game it was exactly um but, you know, that that kind of thing that puts a, a, a measure of pressure on referees um, to just be a bit more aware about uh, the treatment that certain players get. Yeah, and we've seen it from Arsenal players in the past. I can think back to Reyes and you know, mm. those games against Man United where they do get, they get targeted and they get kicked out of matches. And, and sometimes it takes... Um, it takes the team to to stand by them and rally them, and it and it can be a unifying thing as well. Um, mm. You know, we we spoke to Zinchenko after after that Villa game, and uh, he was asked about about Saka and protection. And it's one of those things where you know players are very media trained in this modern age. He could have played it quite straight back and said, you know, we need to let the officials run the game; they're the ones in charge. But he quite you know bullishly came out and said, no, he needs more protection. You know. He, you protect the likes of Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. This is a big player. You've got to protect him. Um, and it kind of feels like a lot of people who've watched Arsenal every week have come away from games going, you know, Saka needs protection. He needs more protection. And it feels like, what are we now? February. It's mm. finally becoming something that's in the sort of media narrative. It's being discussed quite openly. Um, 
I know we're recording this before Arteta's press conference tomorrow, I would highly suspect that that will be something that dominates the agenda is the treatment of Saka. Um, so that will, again, as well as players standing up, it being in the people's minds and he's not getting enough protection, could shift away from what we've seen for these opening sort of six, seven months of the season. All right. Well, look, we'll we'll see what happens uh, next time he gets booted up in the air by, by some <laughs> opposition clogger. A um, few quick things just to finish off. Mohamed Elneny signed a, a new contract this week, despite the fact that he picked up a very serious knee injury. He's likely to be out for uh, a long time. Um, certainly, certainly, I guess, long enough that the transfer window would come and go if his contract expired at Arsenal. How do you view the decision to hand him a new deal, despite the fact that he may not be able to play until, let's say, the end of the year? Um I mean, do you think that's the right thing for the club to do? Some people will say, look, that's football. You've got to be ruthless. His contract was coming to an end. He's not old, but he's a senior player. He's he's kind of, um, you know, very much a, a squad player, a fringe player, um, a Premier League level anyway, because he's deputizing Thomas Partey. Um, other people will say that, look, you know, the player's been injured playing for you. You have a duty of care to him, and it, it it's a good message maybe to send to the rest of the squad and and to show that this is a club that will will have the backs of their players. Yeah, I mean Arsenal, if they if they wanted to, they had the option in the contract, and then they signed at the back end of last season to extend this by by a year. Um, and I, I was told that this is a fresh new deal, um, which would indicate the terms aren't what they would have been before. So I would I would suspect that El Nene is probably taking a pay cut to to stay at the club for another year. And that is where you can understand if a player is injured and the club say, look, we want to keep you, but you can understand you're injured. You can't play for this amount of time. So let's do some sort of deal. Mm. Um, I think for if you speak to anyone at Arsenal, they will tell you how loved Mohamed El Nene is. Um, yeah. And... The players around the squad who aren't playing every week do have a big impact on the success of the players on the pitch. And when Arsenal were going through those troubles, the sort of post-Wenger era, Emery time, even the start of our the Arteta reign, if you looked at those around the squad and compared the ones around the squad now, I think the the atmosphere as a group, the unity is very different. And someone like El Nene is key to that. I mean, I remember when we spoke to him at the back end of last season when he was sort of weighing up whether he was going to stay. And we sort of asked him in the mix zone, look, you you maybe want to move on. You're not really playing. He's like, no, I'm going to stay. This is where I want to stay. I love it here. It's my family. Um, you know, he's doing his coaching badges. So I kind of, for me, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, I can't imagine it's huge wages. He's a great pro. He's loved around the squad. Um, he's not someone who's going to kick up, kick up a huge fuss. And it feels just a sensible piece of business. And if you really wanted to, if he's recovered by the summer, and El Nene turns around and says, actually, you know, I want to leave. Well, you've got him on a one-year contract. You might be able to get a small fee and and it's uh, it's good business. So it just feels sensible for me from Arsenal. And I know there's the injury, but um, yeah, I think he's a good player to have around that group. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting in that he is sort of like a backup goalkeeper in the sense of how he accepts his role at the club, right? Because... Some people will say, "Well, look, if you're properly ambitious, you want to play every week. You want to, you, you want to, you know, be out there playing ninety minutes as often as you can. Particularly when you get to, let's say, the September of your career, you know, you want to, you want to just maximize." But he clearly 
has a great affection for Arsenal, if he's willing to take a pay cut to stay, um, all of those things that, that you've mentioned, I think there's something kind of nice about that as well, which is, you know, this isn't a charity case. We've seen Mikel Arteta um, ruthlessly deal with his squad. And anyone that he doesn't think fits, either from a personality point of view or an ability point of view, is basically gone. So I don't think they're giving Elneny a deal just because he's a nice guy. I think it's because Mikel Arteta truly believes that if he needs him when he's fit, he can do a job. He's a sort of dependable squad player. And while we all want to see the team improve and do more, you do kind of need those guys. Yeah, yeah. We should we should clarify that he's, he's not getting a contract for being... Um being a good bloke but it's part yeah. of the whole package um you know you look at and, and Arteta says this point doesn't he he says you know you look at as a, a player as a whole and if they'll fit the group and there is with El Nene particularly probably over the last 18 months or so when he hasn't really played regularly mm. where there's been moments where he's literally been parachuted into the team for sort of three four games and he has performed you know a solid seven out of ten mm -hmm. and I think having a player like that in the squad who isn't going to kick up a huge fuss if he's not playing every week. But if you suddenly get to a point where you're like, hang on, we need this guy to play for a month. We've got to throw him in. Mm. He will step up and do it. And, you know, we were talking before the, the Man City games, I was talking with James actually in the press here, and we were, we were saying, you know, who would you rather be have playing tonight, Jorginho or El Nene? And it was actually for both of us quite a sort of a close call because whenever you, El Nene's been called upon, he's delivered. And as much as I think Jorginho... You know, he's, he has a brilliant game. You, you feel like maybe with him, he could have a sort of small game. But I think on then it just that reliability and that ease to know if some sort of crisis unfolds, you can just throw him in mm. is a really valuable thing. And if you were, you know, looking to go into the market and sign a player like that, what are you spending? I and mean, it's definitely going to be more than keeping him for a year. That's true. I mean, what what do you make of the argument that some people might put forward that keeping El Nene, having just signed Jorginho, it might have an impact on Arsenal's summer business. I mean, my personal opinion is I don't think it will in that they really want to bring in a high-profile midfielder. We know the names that have been linked. I don't think for a second that keeping Elneny is an impediment to doing a deal like that. It doesn't make that kind of deal any more difficult than it already is. But there will be people saying, well, what about, you know, if we have those players, he could block somebody's way. Maybe Charlie Patino won't get the chance that he should get, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how, how do you see that side of the argument? No, no, I can't. I can't see it impacting the, um, the summer business, particularly as, you know, I think it, I think it was Mark, Mark from the Press Association who reported that El Nene had taken a pay cut. And if that is the case, then in fact, it's improved the summer budget really because you know you've cut the wage I guess you could say he'd be completely gone but you know the noises coming from Arsenal in January um, was obviously that they were ready to spend big money on a midfielder they couldn't get Caicedo um, but even when that Caicedo stuff was bubbling along obviously we heard about Declan Rice which there was no chance West Ham were going to sell in, in January mm. but in the summer Arsenal looking to do that and the noises you were hearing was that you know, there's, there's feasibility to sign both of these players so I really don't think El Nene is going to stop Arsenal going out and getting um, you know, a marquee midfielder, which is what that that team needs. You then have a question about your, you know, Arsenal obviously wanted two midfielders and they signed Jorginho. What do you do now? Do you who's going to have a year left in his contract? Do you 
go again into the market? Do you bring in a Patino? Do you, as we talked a bit about here, do you move in a Smith Rowe there, a Vieira? So I think that is an interesting situation this summer, but certainly I can't see El Nene staying for another year impacting a signing a marquee midfielder. All right. Um, final thing to mention today is the fact that while we're recording Thursday, podcast is out on Friday, and maybe by the time people will have listened to this, the Europa League draw will have come out for the for the round of 16. Arsenal um, are at home in the, in the second leg, uh, but some of the potential uh, opponents are, are quite strong, aren't they? It's it's quite a serious competition at this point because you've got the likes of Juventus are in there, Man, Man United, of course, uh, Barcelona. Um, that's a game that's taking place tonight. Ajax, Roma, Sevilla, PSV Eindhoven. You know, some really good teams in there. What's your thoughts on how Mikel Arteta is going to approach these games? Because, you know, there's an argument that this is the perfect place for... Vieira to play as a left eight to give Smith Rowe a bit more time to ease Gabriel Jesus back in, you know, to to give the likes of Tommy Asu, Kieran Tierney, maybe Kivior his debut, things like that to sort of shake things up a little bit. But Arteta's also said top players have got to be able to play seventy games. You've got to play every three or four days. You've got to do it at a high level. He is going to have to consider the balance, though, isn't he, between the Premier League, the potential reward that comes at the end of this season, if Arsenal could keep going in that, and competing in Europe as well? Because it would be lovely to win a European competition. You know, it's been too long since Arsenal have won a European trophy. Even if it's not the one we all want, it would still be lovely to to win that trophy. But the Europa League doesn't quite have the same significance this time around when in previous seasons, maybe Arsenal have been looking at it as uh, as it was in the final against uh, Chelsea in, in Baku, the back door into the Champions League. Um, so how do you think he's going to look at this competition? Yeah, I think I think we will see rotation, whether we see the sort of nine, ten changes that happened in the group stage. I'm not so sure. Simply because of a, when we get into that April May time, the the momentum that is caused, even from changing competition, I just feel can be can be huge. Um, you know, particularly if you if you if you go to a European team, I know if you're playing at different level players, but if you went there and you suffered a big defeat and you're coming back and playing on the Sunday, I just feel that there needs to be some sort of continuity and trying to keep that momentum flowing through through the team. So I think there will be changes, but. I can't see him going into games completely swapping the whole starting eleven, but there will need to be rest and rotation. And this is where, you know, the players we spoke about, your Vieiras, your Tierneys, making sort of five, six changes to the team can be important. Um, and you look at the team, didn't it? Like you say, I mean, there's there's a lot of serious, serious teams in there. And, mm. and that is the thing with the Europa League. It always starts out in the group stage as this sort of, or where where the fans are looking at where are we going where we've never been there before what kids are playing and then you get to the business end and actually it becomes a, a really serious competition so I think for Arsenal it's a case of trying to trying to manage fighting on two fronts if they can trying to keep the momentum going in both um, but the, the priority is obviously the Premier League but I, I can't see a way where you just throw away this competition. Um, and Arteta's never done that, has he? I mean, even in the FA Cup at Oxford, you know, he played a pretty strong team. That's just not his style. Um, 
but it's going to be interesting to see. And I think for for fans, some of those trips. I mean, Seville, Rome, um, Barcelona. I, quite, I could I could see a trip to Rome with Jose Mourinho if they've not been knocked out after we've recorded this. That would certainly be a be a spicy game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some. Um... Some fascinating potential draws in there. Um, so I guess that will depend as well. You know, what, who you get will inform who you play in, in that competition. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how he balances that and, and Premier League action. All right, listen, we leave it there as ever. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much indeed to Simon. You can find him on Twitter. He is at SR underscore Collings, at SR underscore Collings. And he writes about Arsenal and other things for the Evening Standard. So that is just about that. Of course, we will be looking ahead to our game against Leicester in a little more detail over on Patreon. Myself and Phil Costa this week, standing in for Lewis Ambrose, we'll do our usual Premier League preview podcast. If you're not on Patreon, you can join. It's quick, it's easy, you get instant access to everything, and you support what we do on Arsblog, as well as getting exclusive content. It's patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. We will have that podcast for you on Friday afternoon. Of course, the game against Leicester is on Saturday. James and I will be here on Monday. Let's keep fingers crossed. It's another goodly morning. I'm not picky. I will take a win whatever way it comes, but something a little more relaxing than the one we saw against Aston Villa will be very welcome. Uh, I think there may be some ups and downs still to come in this crazy season that we're experiencing. For now, I'll leave it there as ever. Thank you so much indeed for being here and for listening, for downloading and all the rest. Have yourselves a great weekend and we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Welcome back to Talk Shite Radio, talking shite about sport 24 hours a day. With us now on the line to discuss the biggest story of the day is former Brinklington Town and England midfielder, Martin Doc Martin. How are you today, Doc? Oh, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, the big topic of the day is Bukayo Saka and the lack of protection Arsenal fans think he's not getting from referees. What do you make of this, Doc? Uh, to be honest, I don't really understand it, you know. Back in my day when I was playing, you'd, you'd get kicked from pillar to post and then you'd be out on the pitch the next day doing training. That was after you cleaned up the terraces, of course. And it didn't matter if you had a broken leg or out. You just, you just played on. I think the players these days are a bit too soft. Just playing devil's advocate here, though, Doc. You are wheelchair-bound. Ah, yeah, I am, yeah, I have been for years. You nearly died on the operating table after one of the many knee and hip replacement surgeries that was required. Yeah, I, I saw the light and I was, I was going towards the light, to be honest, and then all of a sudden I got dragged back. And you require round-the-clock care, meaning that you've had to sell all your medals and every single possession that you ever owned just to pay for it. Well, I, I couldn't argue with that, and I am basically destitute, and I see I am most of the day with in my crusty pants. Would you have liked a bit more protection from referees, Doc? Well, I, I suppose so, but if you're asking me, I'd much prefer protection from the fucking bush that ran me over. As ever, an absolute pleasure to talk to Martin, Doc Martin, here on Talk Shite Radio. We're going to take a break. When we return, Aston Villa goalkeeper Emmy Martinez talks to us about his first Arsenal goal. Talk Shite Radio, talking shite about sport 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.